Good morning, fortune tellers, and welcome back to the Fortune Teller Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan, and we are here to talk about DeFi, NFTs, and how the cryptocurrency industry goes mainstream. Today, I sit down with Ivan Ravlich, who is the co-founder and CEO of Hypernet Labs. Hypernet is building cutting-edge cyber infrastructure for wide mainstream adoption of Web3 applications. Two applications that we'll focus in on today are Hypernet ID and Hypernet Mint. Different platforms and protocols that they're building are garnered towards mainstream adoption of blockchain technology. And I couldn't be more excited than to welcome Ivan to the show. Ivan, welcome aboard. I'd love if you could give a backstory as to what you were working on before you got into the cryptocurrency space. Yeah, definitely. And thanks again, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here um, to talk about all things crypto, especially because it's so important now in the early phases to really drive adoption mainstream and to get those real like early adopters in um, to start building this momentum beyond where we are now. So happy to be here. Um, some stuff about me in the past, I think uh, before I was really bit by the Web3 blockchain bug, I was... Um, you know, I was down the engineering track. I was a chemical engineer and a material scientist. I did a lot of work with biofuels, producing new uh, new ways to produce titanium, making new types of ceramic body armor. Ended up following my love into space wow. travel. Um, Can I just yeah. pause and say, wow, that is amazing. What I, a world I, have story. I have a lot of stories. I have a lot of stories about those. So we can, uh, you know, maybe another time we can dive into that wacky world. But ended up um, coming out here to uh, back to the U.S. I, I grew up in the U.S., but um, I was lived in New Zealand for an early part of my life. Um, ended up coming back to California to uh, study aerospace engineering at Stanford. I was there for my master's and PhD, uh, most of my PhD, I should say, until I left to start Hypernet. Um, but aerospace engineering is a, is a crazy world because it's so interdisciplinary. You have to pick up you know, stuff from chemistry, stuff from mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, computer science. Uh, the work that I was personally doing was um, how we can you know, change how we move around in space. And so my, uh, my work was all in high energy plasma physics for uh, spacecraft propulsion. And I eventually went down the rabbit hole of um, some deeper like theoretical and experimental physics tracks for, you know, how you can start to link the spin of particles to gravity. And that's where my, the majority of my research was in during the PhD until I left to start Hypernet. So Walk us through this world of how you're trying to change the trajectory of like an object in space. Your idea was that if there's a relative between the spin of an electron or an atom in space and the gravitational pull from an object, and it, that it, it, be turned into how you move an object, like it's a, it, it's a it's a pretty fundamental interaction. So if you talk about like the more fundamental aspects of matter. You have mass, you got charge, and you got spin. Um, we know very pretty well how the mass of a particle and the charge of a particle affects gravity, but how the spin of a particle kind of loops into what's happening with gravity from a quantum level starts to become um, a bit more fuzzy. And there's a lot of different theories out there. They're hard to test. They're hard to um, to validate what they're working on. So a big part of my work um, before. I'm starting Hypernet was how do I build an experiment to try to probe some of these more fundamental aspects of uh, the spin of particles and gravity. There's a lot of interactions between these fundamental pieces of uh, what makes matter matter. And, uh, you know, just want to get to know all that. 
Yeah. And how do you build in that scientific playground when you're also thinking about the application sets of it? Unlike Web2 infrastructure or, or startups where it's move fast and break things, you can't break things in this world. It, hardware, what was that like mentality? Like, how did you experiment in the space? What's What's interesting is like, uh, you know, and this is one of the, uh, you know, one of my probably one of the problems of academia as well is like, you know, you're you're encouraged to push the boundary, but also like you can't push it too far. So you need to push it and go deep in that little area and make it make your little dent. But at the same time, like it's, uh, you know, you you can't do the big things you got to do because you got to publish, you got to get published, you got to get, you know, your your piece of paper that says you're 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 qualified to do these things. And so there's a framework to think about it. So when you start to think about the Wild West of, you know, where I think uh, science should also be, by the way, um, but the Wild West of crypto, it's like, you know, we got to just try things and break it when you're trying to build a company in even a traditional setting. Like it's all about you have your thesis, you have your hypothesis, let's try to break it and uh, keep moving forward. So there's a lot of commonalities, I would say, between the science and engineering worlds and also like uh, starting a company and startups and business. But, um, you know, it's uh, the stakes are a little different depending on what you're uh, <laughs> what you're working on. Well, the stakes in finance are real. Um, unlike the Internet or dot com days when it was purely data in a user's account. Now it's it's money. Money is at stake. And there have been a number of hacks in the DeFi space. More recently, the wormhole bridge, um, which was a bridge where you could move money from Ethereum to Solana, was hacked for believe 350 million and that was a showcase it's a non-negligible amount imagine that headline if it was a bank if it was a major bank loses 350 million in deposits DeFi is in a stage where in one way it's an experiment in another way we need a scientific approach we need security in place so it's fascinating hearing how you can bring those philosophies and the, those frameworks over to the space that is traditionally the wild west we can because it's open technology we can experiment with anything what's really crazy here is like you know yeah it's open technology we can experiment with things but we need to have a more structured approach to how we're going to bring this mainstream because yeah it's it's one of the greatest laboratories i've ever seen you know especially for economic and financial primitives being able to do these types of experiments that we've seen but when you start dealing with you know, high stake, like you, like you mentioned, the wormhole bridge, for instance, you know, if you're starting to deal with high stake um, issues, like you need to come at this with um, a way to make it as secure and, you know, maybe this might be a bad word in the crypto space, but trusted as possible, you know, that you're trusting in the math and you're trusting in the, in the, the systems that you have put in place. And if you mess up, the, the implications are disastrous, and, you know, like it is someone's livelihood that you're dealing with. And I think this is one of the biggest um, fears of the, you know, the the more traditional financial sector is can we trust the technology and then can we trust you know the the people that are in there too, um, and so I think that's one of the main uh, reasons why we've uh, put our flag in the sand about how we see a project a trajectory from where we are today to mainstream adoption. We need to have some level of of trust or compliance in place so that way these traditional institutions can move into the sector with full confidence that they can start to put their own clients' money into the system. And that's where the hypernet ID portion really comes into play. Trust comes from different flavors. There's trust 
from a security perspective that the infrastructure has been audited and there's been stress tests. Trust comes from reputation of the people who have built the infrastructure or people who are managing it. Or if it's a decentralized protocol, trust comes from the group of people that are behind the DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. And trust also comes from the business partners, the people, the other entities that are associated with a specific project. When you think of Hypernet ID, how did you imagine designing the identification system, KYC, AML, compliance, regulatory worlds around Hypernet ID? How did you think of conceiving an identification layer that would mold into something that could be mainstream, that could be picked up by the masses? So a lot of the work that we have been doing at Hypernet has been, you know, we've been fundamentally building infrastructure and parts of this are like thoughts, things we have to wrestle with ourselves, with our own products about how we can, you know, safely do business in a changing, you know, regulatory landscape as well. So that way, not only are our users um, on both sides are protected, but also that, you know, there's trust built into the network. We still have this philosophy, though, of, you know, while blockchain is, you know, trustless and open um, and you can transparent from what you can see, we also want to be able to respect the end user's privacy. So there were two main things that we were considering. It was how do you protect the end user's privacy while attributing some form of identity to their crypto wallet so that way they can interact directly on the blockchain smart contract level with these different types of DeFi products and uh, marketplaces and other things that people are building with this the main pieces of this is how do we make how do we make it you know compliant with where the regulations are are going to make to break open crypto to be more mainstream but two how do we still have that core ethos of web3 of how you know, people are able to do business in a in a more like ownership level of who you are and your data flow, and not everyone gets to see everything about you. So when we built Hypernet ID, it's all around. It's a pretty simple concept once you get into it, actually, because one, we had to make Hypernet ID be fully accessible on on chain. Um, if it's a mix of on chain and off chain portions. You start to get into uh, you know questions about well can the system be circumvented because you know blockchains have a hard time dealing with things that are not local and instantaneous on the chain itself. So if you start to add in okay now another user needs to inject some some level of information into the equation it starts to wreck the user experience. But if you don't have it all and if you have it all on chain though then you have problems about okay well now all my information's out there. But if it's not all on chain, then I can circumvent, you know, like somebody could circumvent the uh, the user interface and go straight to the smart contracts and get around whatever gating that people are doing now. The concept that we put forward when Hypernet ID is all around how you can create a an NFT that encodes what checks were done on an individual and if they passed or not. That is very extensible. It's in the metadata of the NFT. So, you know, there can be an awesome picture or whatever with it, but really at the end of the day, it's the metadata that's written to the NFT that lives on chain that people's projects can then filter by to say, does this person meet the criteria that can do business within my permissioned pool or within my marketplace that I'm building? And that is all encoded into an NFT that's non-transferable and sent to the, uh, to the user's wallet, thereby linking in an identity to that person's wallet via NFT. Would it be fair to compare this to a passport, but the digital version of a passport? 
It really is. And like, you know, one of the best things about NFTs are like, you know, they're a digital asset that if you control the private keys of your wallet, you control that digital asset and that is yours and nobody can, you know, can take that away from you. So, so it's not just like yeah. a passport where you control it. And yep. the TLDR is you, we have an NFT in our mm-hmm. wallet and that NFT has whatever checkpoints I've stopped by. Like a passport would say I've been to America, I've been to Mexico, I've been to France. But here it would say I've proven that my age is above a sp- certain number or in the credit world, I've proven that my credit score is above a threshold or I fall into some bucket. Yeah, I'm not on a sanctions list. I'm not, you know, from like these areas that I can't do business with, et cetera. So it's all encoded inside of those NFTs. And it just says whether you are eligible for those checks to be able to do business. Now, can that be used on any chain? So right now we are um, on Ethereum compatible chains. So Ethereum virtual machine compatible chains. So what that means is, you know, Ethereum, Polygon, Avalanche, we can deploy on like Harmony, you know, Binance Smart Chain, you know, Phantom. It's uh, that kind of ecosystem that is built off of to- on the top of the Ethereum virtual machine. Um, we have plans to deploy this onto other chains, but right now those are where we're seeing the most traction for our um, end users that want to actually leverage um, the ID. What do you think are those first use cases that developers will come to life with? Utilizing an application that proves an identity and has AML and KYC checks. What are those first use cases? Those first use cases really come down to uh, permission DeFi pools. People who are doing like need to be able to gate who is able to participate in them. And I know it's like not it's not a sexy application, but it is something that's going to help us drive mainstream adoption. Um, is you know if we can set up these permission DeFi pools that can gate at the smart contract level, like who can be eligible, then more traditional companies, uh, you know, like sovereign wealth funds, these kind of entities can now start to say, okay, now I know these folks that are in these pools are qualified for uh, for me to put my money in. So that way I'm not slapped with a, a pretty bad, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we won't go into all the things that can go wrong, but yep. basically, you know, like they need to be able to know that they're doing business with the right people inside of these pools. That's probably one of the first um, applications that we'll see. And DeFi is quite a large space. And so really the uh, the imagination is the limit of what types of financial products could use this. But it will be this concept of a permission pool that are the first use cases of ID. It may not sound sexy to the end DeFi user that's in love with this idea of everything will always be on chain. And there's some flavor of anonymity that I've never revealed, but in order to keep continue growing the total addressable market of DeFi, we need these solutions. Institutions right. today, they won't play. They won't step into our sandbox because there have yet to be financial infrastructure that supports ident- identification of wallet addresses. Have you had com- initial conversations with these institutions? Have you felt that appetite for the applications of DeFi as they're permissioned? That's the most exciting part is like there's these traditional, you know, banks, trust companies, like they all are interested in crypto. They're interested and they're they're seeing like, you know, oh, you get these insane returns on stable coins, you know, in these DeFi pools. But the problem is that they can't then take their money and put it in there because like, oh, well, you know, it's not compliant yet. I don't know what the regulatory landscape is. This is part of the Wild West. And so the indications that I've seen in the market is like, if we can start to build this legitimacy, 
where the first movers of those types of companies can put their money in, that's going to, in, in my opinion, that's going to start the avalanche um, into, into the whole entire ecosystem once we get the big money to move. Yeah, interested doesn't always mean using. Interested <laughs> typically comes with a but. And yep. solving that but, it unlocks this flood of liquidity that has yet to be tapped into. The other market that I'm imagining is the credit ecosystem, which is untapped in crypto. We haven't built out the core infrastructure and the markets for this to happen, but they're coming and they're going to be here. Do you see a world where I could have a credit score check run and approved and added to my wallet without ever revealing my actual credit score? Oh, definitely. I mean, like we built Hypernet ID. This, the concept is very extensible. Like right now we're doing checks for like, you know, you verified your address, you got your, you know, your, your name, your email address, your, your government issued ID. Are you on a sanctions list? You know, what country are you in? But it's very much extensible to be like, oh, would you like to do like accredited investor checks? Oh, would you like to do um, the ability to say like, yes, you know, here's like the type of credit score this person has. Like that stuff is able to be put in there um, and it's very extensible. And we really want to be mindful about how we extend it um, to have the most impact um, to get like crypto mainstream adoption. So we could put 600 things in there, but what's going to be the most useful to get the first adopters in is what we're focused on. Absolutely. And permission pools feels like that first use case. In order there's for also actually like, uh, you know, to sorry to interrupt you there, but there's also like, um, like, you know, like NFT marketplaces as well. Something people tend to not think about too much when you're doing very large scale transactions above a certain, you know, dollar threshold that, tr that should trigger, you know, traditionally it triggers anyway, like, you know, AML, KYC checks for the end user themselves because there's the potential to move a lot of money through these NFTs. Board apes are worth what two hundred thousand. Like, what number would trigger that in the I traditional? I think it's world? on the order of like you know sub twenty k. You know, it's like not a crazy amount. Um, and so then there's also tax implications of that too. You know, it's okay if you're doing you know a transaction above like ten k. Okay, great. Yeah, I'd be ten ninety nine. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what does that what does that mean? Like the blockchain won't 1099 me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's uh, you need to be able to start to link the end user's wallet to their identity to be able to have these more these more traditional feeling things that are going to be very impactful to uh, the space. And let, let's lean into privacy. So when I go through the approval process on chain, it's just a true or false. Yes, I'm approved. Where does my data go? Is it stored? Is it thrown away? How do I know that my privacy is preserved as an end user? So I think it comes back to a core question of what Web3 means and what Web2 did not give us. Um, it comes down to really, it's not quite about pure, you know, like, I don't want anyone to know anything that I'm doing, period. While, like, I think we'd all agree that would be the best future at the same it's time. Impossible. Like, it's impossible. If you want anything <laughs> that takes credit underwriting, it's impossible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So now it comes down to less about pure privacy in all aspects, but more of putting the control in the end user's you know, court to say, what aspects of my identity or what aspects of me and my data should go out to others? Um, and then controlling that flow tightly. So in, the, in our case here, when we create the ID, 
the user can opt into either leaving the, ID, I, the PII stored on either our secure servers or inside of our third parties that do the identity checks, or they can request it all wiped. Um, so that way, but then you don't get the ongoing you know checks that are in there. So it really comes down to how the end user wants their data to proliferate and how they should be in control of where it goes. And it should be very transparent of who has access to what is something that I think is a core piece of the Web3 ethos. Uh, A flaw in the Web2 world is the concept of double spend. And Bitcoin came in to solve the double spend problem from a financial standpoint, where you couldn't in Web2 prove that you owned an asset because it was easy to replicate and there was no encryption to prove I own something. So centralized services like PayPal came around and PayPal told you you owned this. You didn't really own it. It was a receipt at PayPal. There's also that with identity. Everywhere I go, when I if I'm applying for a mortgage and I go through a couple different agencies, I am porting, porting over all of my information to that underwriter. And it's another double spend problem because I should be able to go to one pits, one stop, one toll road, say, here's who I am. The toll road keeps my information. Great. And then I go use that, whatever I want. And it sounds like Hypernet ID is allowing that. Yes. Once you do the check and you get that NFT, which is non-transferable, by the way, so you can't just go send it to somebody else. But like now that you have that NFT in your wallet, now you can go and take that ID anywhere that wants to accept that. And so now it's a one-stop shop where it's like, yeah, I did my checks, boom, I'm done. Now I can take that and go wherever I need to go to do business. And that, I think, is the point that you're we're trying to make. And it's very much about how you can do like, control your, your data flow and you know have the convenience layer on top of it. So it really kills two birds with one stone. And it's user user first, user first privacy. The other product coming out of Hypernet is the Mint product. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about it? Give us a TLDR. So the TLDR around Hypernet Mint is enterprise-grade NFT creation at scale with some awesome authenticity things built into it and tools to distribute those NFTs to your end users or straight to different marketplaces to sell them. With Hypernet Mint, it's all about how I can take the concept of NFTs to either creatives that want to do things of art all the way through to companies that want more functional NFTs, whether they are acting as tickets to get into concerts, through to something like like Hypernet ID, which is a pure utility NFT that could give access to like physical doors to digital communities, um, and like what kind of perks you can add to these types of NFTs. We've encapsulated all of that into a single product to give a non Web three company the ability to leverage what NFTs with functionality and more utility can give them um, without having to you know, invest in Web3 infrastructure, invest in more developers, and they can just plug and play um, seamlessly into their own products to mint their entire collections of NFTs. Now, this goes from a collection where I, I just have an artist. I no longer need the technical capabilities to build the entire NFT collection and drop. Is, is that the... Yeah, that, that's that's the TLDR right there. Is you know, you have you have the content. You want to leverage NFTs. How do I create them? And I, I might want to create a lot. By the way, I might need like tens of thousands to millions of NFTs for whatever my collection is. How do I do that without investing technical infrastructure and and getting the developers to do that? Secondly, how do I then distribute those NFTs? 
So whether I want to airdrop them, whether I want to sell them directly to my users, whether I want to put them into third-party marketplaces, you know, we give all those options to the the end company or the end creative or the end artist that wants to leverage NFTs, and they can even say what these NFTs are going to do. Are they going to unlock, you know, merchandise on your website? Are they going to give you physical access to an event? Are they going to give you like more perks for later drops of that specific um, product or use case that the uh, that the end user wants to do? Interesting. So as a new creator, or you mentioned enter- enterprise grade. So as a business, let's say I'm a major brand. We know uh, Adidas came into the NFT space in 2021. Prada, they did a partnership with Adidas. Uh, we saw Budweiser, Pepsi. We saw Lamborghini enter the NFT space. So many major corporations and brands are joining, but they haven't been in the space long enough to have a core understanding. And today it takes it takes a team of engineers to launch an NFT project. So it sounds like for the NFT drops of tomorrow, you don't need that technical expertise. And this is something that will drive mainstream adoption. This is something where the enterprises can come interact with this ecosystem without needing the talent to do so. Have you started having those conversations with some of the bigger brands about their play into the NFT space? There's some uh, pretty interesting stuff in the pipeline, I got to say. I can't you know, name exact names at the moment, Ryan. But basically, it all comes down to you know their end user base and the actual like company themselves they're they're more crypto curious and they're anywhere from like you know communities of thousands of people through to like very large brands that might be able to bring quite a lot of new users into the crypto space itself how do we easily onboard those users into crypto educate them along the way while also giving the almost a user-friendly aspect of creating NFTs to that company. So they might even have Web2 engineers that, that, that are like, you know, very well used to integrating with traditional applications. We built the minting product to be able to fit directly into these types of um, infrastructure backends as well. So an artist could come in, upload all their content and create and batch mint their entire collection and then distribute them. Or you can programmatically on demand mint these things and you can use like techniques like lazy minting where, you know, the gas fees go off to the end user themselves who's actually buying it um, to actually mint the NFT. There's a lot of techniques we use under the hood to make it even easier for both sides of the user base. But it really is taking the, the communities that want the NFTs from these brands and companies, getting them the access to those drops. And then this is where Hypernet ID comes back into play as well. Now that the user also has a Hypernet ID, they can opt into the ability to be directly contacted by those brands to be able to further you know, get opportunities that they necessarily might not have been able to, um, to achieve in the more traditional, hey, I hold an NFT awesome world. What do you think about mainstream adoption? You mentioned... The back end, the back end infrastructure, but you also mentioned the front end interface and Hypernet ID can come in to play as well from both sides. It can come in in the back end because the enterprise can view that identifier, but also it could be something that the user showcases to prove that I can join a permissible DeFi pool. Do you see mainstream adoption happening in a way that this technology, both the identification system and the NFT 
process minting system is built into the back end of mainstream applications from the DeFi side that would be like a robin hood or sofi from the nft side that might be a spotify or an instagram do you see mainstream adoption happening in that way where these bigger apps where the user base integrates the technology or do new applications arise that then garner mass and garner mainstream users? i think you're gonna see both i think you really are gonna see both like the the days of web 2 with the uh, you know the large platforms that gate content and can like you know remove or add new content at will you know that's going to that's going to be disrupted by web 3 you know more easy direct access between like the creator in the case of like spotify to the end user but this doesn't preclude these companies of also adopting the technology if they're actually going to innovate and uh, stay relevant so what where we see our our position with hypernet is how we can be that the bridge that gap between the web3 complexity the craziness that goes on and all the nuance that's there cuz there's if you do something wrong like we saw with wormhole you know it has big implications so like you need to know have expertise there before you can even service a product or even build a product around it and that takes a long time and a lot of developer expertise which are quite hard to find now um, you know, it's a it's a very difficult uh, space for hiring, and so when these larger brands are like, "Hey, I want to be able to make some NFTs," how what's the pool of developers that they can pull over? So if they have a way to say, "Oh, I know how to integrate with drop in your favorite Web two architecture here," well, great. Now I can actually mint NFTs and plug this right into my backend and provide a service to my end users. So that's where we want to sit with the minting product is. How, how do we bridge that gap and how do we make it as easy as possible to integrate with or to build brand new applications on without having to have the, the more com- complex side of it um, figured out from an in-house perspective? User experience is how we will drive mainstream adoption, yep. both from the back end of a B2B type business and from the interface to a user. We always like to ask a final question on the Fortune Teller podcast. That is... If you had a crystal ball in front of you right now, and I'll lean into DeFi since we spoke of the identification service and the ID, the Hypernet ID, what could you most confidently predict will happen in the DeFi space, ideally as it relates to identification, KYC, AML, compliance, by the end of this year? So looking into my crystal ball, it's, it's sparkling at me. It's smiling. It's winking. You got a Basically, nice one. Basically, what I see happening, and like we're we're already, you know, I don't I don't think you need a rocket scientist to tell you this, but really, like regulation is coming, Um, whether it's coming this year or next, you know, it's it's on its way, and the first movers in the DeFi space to tackle this head on, I think, are going to be the smart players that are able to survive what is going to come and set up the space for success. So, what we need and what I hope to see this year. Are, uh, is almost like a hybrid world of, yeah, we got our open cowboy, you know, DeFi protocols that anyone can enter into. Let's not change that. But let's set up new ones. And let's set up a new type of DeFi pool that is gated, that has the, still respects user privacy, brings legitimacy to the space. I think we're going to see a lot of that coming online this year because we're only in, you know, month three. And, uh, you know, people are starting to move. And so what we're going to do with Hypernet is to really jumpstart and accelerate that with our solution because uh, it is just incredibly seamless and easy to adopt. It's a one-liner in your smart contract. You're done. We're excited to watch the growth of this hybrid ecosystem and Hypernet 
being the steward of that growth. Ivan, thank you for joining us. Where can our listeners find out more about you and more about Hypernet? Yeah, go straight to hypernetlabs.io. You should be able to find all the links to any of our social and uh, communities there, as well as also links to our products so you can check out what we're building. Go to Hypernet, check out the products that they're building, and wherever you're listening to this, be sure to check out the show notes for all of the links Ivan mentioned in our conversation. And of course, please follow us on Twitter. We are at Teller, or join our newsletter to find out about our upcoming episodes. Thanks for having me.